today we're going to return to the Gospel of Luke. Um, we're going to pick up in at the end of chapter 21. You can turn there in your Bibles, find it on your smartphone, or follow me on the screen. Um, continue working through the Gospel of Luke. And I do ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word out of respect for Him and not for me. And I will read from the English Standard Version. You can follow along silently as I read. Picking up at verse 37, we find these words written. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. He, he and him speaking of in reference to Jesus. Let's pray and ask our, his blessing on our time. Uh, gracious Father, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I pray uh, in front of the people to, to show our dependence upon you, to acknowledge that you're the one who does the work. Uh, though we do human things, you're ultimately the one who works in people's hearts because we can prepare sermons. Um, there are people with great skills of oration. Uh, we can even make great music, but ultimately no life will change unless you're involved. People will remain as they are. Uh, they'll just say, hey, that was great, appreciated that, and uh, move on with their lives. If there's going to be real heart change, uh, a life to go in a new direction, you have to work. And so we come humbly, asking you for mercy, knowing we can't command you, just as servants, as children before a father, requesting that you would be present and work among us. Lord, my, my only desire is that you're honored, that Christ is glorified, and that at the end of this message, people desire to draw closer to you that they leave this place wanting to seek you, that they will speak well of you, that, that you're the only person who's on their mind. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So last Sunday in the 9 a.m. service, uh, we had an interesting service. So I was up like I am now, just a few minutes from now, uh, and I was preaching uh, the sermon that's online that you didn't hear because we didn't have service. Uh, and while I was preaching, uh, a dear friend of ours, our, one of our church elders, our church administrator who's right here on the front row, uh, Pat, made his way down the aisle. And as he was walking down the aisle toward me as I was preaching, I saw him coming and you just, you know, I'm thinking perhaps he's going to cut off or, you know, go to a different direction, but he didn't cut off in one of the aisles. He walked right up on the stage with me. And not only did he walk up on the stage, he asked for the microphone <laughs> in the sermon. And then he made an announcement about what was going on. And then he asked uh, for us to dismiss the service. He asked the people to, or, to leave orderly. And uh, the first service was very kind. They, no one rushed. No one ran over each other to get out of the building. Uh, the people with children stood up and left first to go get their children, and then everyone else kindly waited, and then they all stood up and exited, and it was a nice, orderly dismissal. Now, of course, uh, most of you know why that happened. If you didn't, there was an email that went out this week, and for those who are not our guests, don't know what happened. Let me share a little bit of the email with you that Pat sent to us all to explain what was going on. He said on Sunday morning, that's last week, 20,000 pounds or so of roof trusses came crashing down in the new addition. That would be right over there. Uh, after the inspection of the scene and an evaluation of the safety of the remaining trusses, 
the decision was made to cancel the 9 a.m. service immediately and send notification to the rest of the congregation that the 11 a.m. service was, can't, was going to be canceled, and that was you. You, you were notified about that. Uh, and so last week, uh, some of the, one of the engineers from our church, or some, in, in, some of the engineers from the, the company that's, that we're working with, have contracted with, uh, Pastor Mike, who was on vacation, got back involved, even though he was on vacation, and Pat, and they kind of held a, a little conference and made a decision uh, to cancel service because they wanted to err on the side of caution because they thought your safety or well, first service safety was more important than continuing with the service. And they, that, that was just out of genuine care and love for a congregation, and I'm thankful for that. Now, it's when these types of things happen that normally, uh, as humans, we ask the question, why? You know, why did this happen? And hopefully that's coming from a good place for all of us. You know, like we're asking that question because we really want to find out perhaps how we might be of service or of help, not just simply to, to put blame. Well, with that aside, and that being the case, there is one thing that we can all walk away with from what happened last week. Last week was a good reminder that there are times in our lives when we're going to have things happen that we don't want to happen to us in life. And those things are just going to show up. And for the, for the purpose of today's message, I want to re refer to those moments in life as unfavorable circumstances. Unfavorable circumstances. Now, I must personally confess, I don't know the reasons behind the building thing and why that happened, so I don't have any information for you on that. I don't know the causes of that. But I can give you some potential reasons of why you have and you will face unfavorable circumstances in your life. Here are a few of those reasons. Uh, on, the, on some occasions, unfavorable circumstances happen to you and to me because the natural world affects human life. So if you've been watching the news in the last week or so, we've been tracking, watching the direction of Hurricane Florence, uh, seeing what was going to happen as it moved towards North Carolina. And there's even some people from our church family who are going down to provide relief aid. Uh, when it was, the storm was first developing, it kind of made me reminiscent of what happened in my home city uh, with Harvey and, and my wife's home uh, island of Puerto Rico. It made me think about that and that it might be that type of situation again, you know, unfavorable circumstances. So sometimes it just happens because that's the natural world that we live in and where we decide to live and nature come together and those two things don't always mix well together. Then sometimes unfavorable circumstances occur because of our own human error, our own human error. So my first job in college, I had started working in high school but changed jobs. I worked for Exxon when I was in, in high school but ended up changing jobs in college to work for Kinko's. Uh, Kinko's now is known as FedEx Office because FedEx bought Kinko's out and took over and gave them the new name. So I used to work for them back in the late 90s. And when I was working there, uh, I remember the first week that I worked there was, was when I came to work, I had, I had to do some, some days of training. And uh, after my training within those first couple of days, uh, there was a guy named Mike, so I've been knowing Mike's a long time. Uh, and he handed me a job to do my first job, and it was a big job. And I was nervous. Mike was like, welcome to the team, brother. Time to work. <laughs> You're here. You got to put some effort in. So I got the job, tried to be as careful as I could, uh, started doing the job, made all the copies that they requested in full color, uh, bound all the books, put the ticket on there, put them in the boxes, boxed them up uh, until later when the customer arrived. Uh, when he did arrive, he was a business customer. I pulled it out. And of course, uh, at that time, part of the customer service was that you wanted them to inspect the copy to make sure that you had done the job correctly. And so he took the copy out, and he started flipping through it. And the first 
question that he asked me was, weren't these copies supposed to be in black and white? To help you kind of understand the monetary value, I had taken what would have been an $80 job and turned it into an $800 job. Unfavorable circumstances. <laughs> At times we experience unfavorable circumstances because other people are, well, to put it nicely, self-focused. And that's what sin does to us. It turns us inwardly and we become what is most important in our world and other people's world. Self-focused. So in high school, a relative of mine, she was remembering and shared with me the story of when she remembers this particular class project. It was a taxonomy project that had a presentation with it and a research paper that was assigned to everyone in the class. Uh, and as the due date was approaching for the research paper and the project to be turned in, uh, which will later be presented, there was a young lady in the class whose research paper that she had done disappeared. Someone in the class took it. I guess they were going to use it as their own. Well, she notified the faculty of the school, and you know what the faculty did. They gathered everybody, put them in a nice little room, and applied pressure. They said to them, hey, listen, so, so one of you in this room is guilty of taking this young lady's paper, and somebody needs to come forward. And if you don't come forward, every one of you is going to spend your Saturday all day cleaning the school building from top to bottom. So whoever you are, you need to come forward. Well, the culprit wasn't worried about that threat, and so everyone spent their Saturday cleaning the building. Now, sometime later, it came out that it was the school chaplain's son who was actually the culprit. Thankfully, he repented, came to faith in Jesus, and now he is a pastor. We all have some skeletons in our closet. <laughs> and lastly, a, a fourth potential reason for unfavorable circumstances, probably the most grievous, is because sometimes you're going to encounter or have encountered unfavorable circumstances because of the malicious intent of human beings and, yes, even spiritual beings the malicious intent because of human beings and spiritual beings. A relative of mine uh, worked for about a decade for a, I believe, unnamed government agency. Uh, and while he was in training for a new management position, uh, he had been working there and uh, in this new management position. He had a new manager that he had worked for, worked for a while. Uh, he had been assigned by that manager and on-the-job uh, trainer so that he could do well in this position. And things had gone fine. Uh, except for one day, uh, the on-the-job instructor, don't know why, he doesn't know why. Uh, she was on the other side of the, the room, whatever room they were in, the floor they were on. There were a lot of cubicles around. He was a distance away from her. Uh, she started speaking very loudly to him, and the best way I can describe it is in an unprofessional manner, uh, such that the other people who were in their cubicles stopped their work and started to look up to see what was going on, why was he being spoken to in that way. Uh, after that incident happened, he then asked for a meeting with the instructor in private. And they sat in the office, and he sat across with her, and he explained to her, hey, I, I get it. Uh, you're the instructor. You were assigned by the manager. Uh, I respect your position. You know, I've always tried to speak to you in a respectful way, always tried to, 
to, to uh, make you look good in, in my work and stuff like that. And, and all I ask that in the future, if you wouldn't mind communicating with me in a respectful way, especially in the light of the fact that there is a huge age difference between us. I mean, she was almost young enough to be his daughter and the kind of age difference that was going on. So he said, would you mind just, just doing that in the future? Uh, she didn't feel very kindly about him talking to her that way and her being in the position she was in and he was in the position uh, that he was in. And so she didn't like that. So she reported him to the manager. That led to a series of meetings between the manager, the instructor, and my relative. Uh, and then that ended up unfolding with uh, turning into an, a situation where he ended up receiving um, a write-up on the job for poor performance. Now, this was interesting because as he related the story to me, just months earlier, just a few months earlier, they had had their annual performance evaluations. And that very manager had written him an outstanding performance evaluation for his work ethic. So this was interesting. And as it also was interesting that the instructor and the manager happened to be friends as well. And so there was another manager in another department who found out about the situation, who uh, liked uh, my relative's work ethic, and so asked the manager that, was, uh, that he was under if he could transfer him over to his department. She then went to her manager and asked her manager to not allow the transfer to happen. And so then he was called in a meeting with his manager's manager, and she informed him that although there had been a request put in for, to be moved to another department, that the move was not going to be allowed. As a result of that, and the way the situation developed, he ended up tendering his resignation. And when he turned in his resignation, he just remembers it because it was so, so uh, vivid in his mind that when he turned in his resignation, his manager said to him, call me in six months, let's see if you're still surviving. See, there are times when people can make our lives hard. That's just the reality of it. And we can be forced into unfavorable circumstances. But the good news from the text is that we're not alone. Jesus understands because he experienced the same thing. He went through it during his ministry. There were some people with malicious intent who sought to put Jesus in some unfavorable circumstances. And that's what we're going to see in the text. Look back at the text with me, chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, we've already read, uh, Luke has already told us earlier, like back in chapter 20, around 1920, that Jesus was teaching in the temple. And he closes, he books into that by reminding us that Jesus has been teaching in the temple and people have been coming to hear him. And the reason why is because the people are looking to Jesus with a messianic expectation. They believe that Jesus potentially might be, or he is, God's deliverer. For them, uh, some of them at least, are thinking that that might mean for them uh, deliverance from Rome. Uh, and this was seen back in chapter 19 with the triumphal entry. 
Uh, and so the people, because they have this view of Jesus, they're captivated by his teaching, not to mention the fact that Jesus is the greatest preacher teacher that has ever lived and walked on the planet. So he was engaging as well. So, but in light of that, they're, they're, they're caught up. Now, this time of year was special for them uh, in their culture because it was a religious time uh, when they remembered certain things. And so there was a festival going on. There was a couple of holidays, things that happened. And so people crowded to the city who were normally not citizens of the city and packed that city out. And so it was overly crowded. So you kind of have to imagine that when Jesus is teaching, uh, this is the, it would be as if Jesus came to the giant center and it was sold out not a seat left in the house. And that's kind of the environment that Jesus is in. And it's in that environment that we find there's some other people who have a different agenda. Certain religious leaders want Jesus removed. Uh, they're threatened by him because he's threatening their way of life and they don't like the fact of the way he has influence over the people. And so they're willing to murder him to protect their power, their status, and to hold on to their influence over the people. But what's ironic is that in the religious culture, they're celebrating, celebrating the fact that God is a deliverer, he's forgiving, and he's merciful. So on one hand, they're celebrating that, but on the other hand, plotting to kill Jesus. It's ironic. But although they have this evil intent in their hearts toward Jesus, they're not able to achieve their desired end because God was protecting Jesus. Like Job, uh, God has put a fence around Jesus where they can't achieve what they want. We see this in the text, verse 2. Notice what it says there. They feared the people. The presence of the people, God is using that presence of the crowds to protect Jesus. So these ill-intentioned religious leaders feared the people. These are intelligent men. They realized the atmosphere with the festival, with the crowding of the people. These people are, are thinking back now that they're being reminded about how God had delivered their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. They're under Roman oppression, and now Jesus, uh, a God-appointed deliverer, has shown up. Now it might be time for them to be delivered from oppression. And so the people have high expectation at this time. And they know that if they move against Jesus publicly, when people see him as the deliverer, well, the people are going to riot. They're just not going to have it. And so they're afraid of the people. They can't move against Jesus in the open. They need Jesus isolated. They need Jesus alone so that their dark purposes can be fulfilled. But there's also another problem. It's right there in the text. See, when Jesus wasn't in the crowd, and the text has always told us, he would leave the city. He wasn't in the public space. And the problem was, when he left, they didn't know where to find him. At that time, there were no satellites flying overhead watching you. Uh, there was no GPS and no cell phone in Jesus' pocket where they could track him down like the government. <laughs> if they wanted to find him. They didn't know. So when Jesus left, he was gone. You needed someone on the inside to tell you where Jesus would be so that you could go get him. So they needed insider information. And the question becomes for them, although we have these plans, we've got these problems, how do we overcome these hurdles? Enter Judas. A member of Jesus' leadership team, as Luke says, 
one of the twelve. And he agrees to provide them with the information that they're looking for. I'm going to tell you when Jesus is alone, that is, away from the crowds. And not only am I going to tell you when he's alone, I'm going to tell you exactly where he's located so you can go get him. It's when in reading this and watching these events unfold that the words of the psalmist start to come to mind. The psalmist wrote these words many years before Jesus was here on earth and these events transpired. He says, listen to this. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Think about this now. Jesus was betrayed by a close friend. But I want you to look at the emotional reaction of the religious leaders. Verse 5. They're happy. They're in a joyful, exuberant mood because they're going to get a chance to get rid of Jesus. They're so excited about this, they're even willing to give money to Judas for the information he's going to provide. And it would seem as a reader, if you were in those circumstances, that at some point you would think that they would wake up and be like, doesn't somebody see something wrong with what we're doing? We're happy, we're celebrating, not about God delivering us, but about the fact we get a chance to hurt somebody. See, thinking about this from a human perspective, it is sad to watch when those who are supposed to represent God plot and plan evil against other people. And yet, they don't see it. As wrong. And that reminds us that we must be extremely careful about the attitudes that we allow in our hearts. See, when we allow sinful attitudes to, to take root in us and that we allow them to grow up in us, what it does is it, the sin, the first thing it does, it begins to blind us to what it's doing in our lives. And then when it's really taking root, it has a way of hardening us. So that even when someone does come to point out that you're headed in the wrong direction, you refuse correction and you refuse to change the direction that you're going. That's what sin does when it takes root in our hearts. And so we have to be careful that we don't become the people who cause the unfavorable circumstances in other people's lives. But that leaves us with the question, why would Judas betray Jesus? It's baffling. The gospel writers, they're not even sure why. And Luke here, all he can come away with is, he says, let me pull back the dimensional curtain, if you will, for us to consider what we might otherwise not consider. Not only are human beings plotting the demise of Jesus, there's someone else in the background who's working in concert with them. You can't see him, you can't access him, but nevertheless, he's there exerting his influence. Satan. And he sees this moment as an opportunity to move against Jesus. Now, this is important, in fact, in light of what Luke has already written, which we would have read last year, chapter 4. Let me remind you of that. Chapter 4 says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Circumstances are now favorable for Satan to achieve his purposes, which he's been looking for for the last several years in Jesus' ministry. And he's going to press 
his advantage. And so he uses his influence in Judah's life to achieve his desired end to help humans do evil. Now, we're not sure exactly how all that works, how he did that, what he did. All Luke says is that, that Satan entered Judas. Some kind of way, he influenced Judas in such a way that Judas said, my only option is to betray Jesus. This reminds us that sometimes unfavorable circumstances that we encounter in life are not only the result of human intention. There are times when there are behind the scenes, behind the curtain, there's someone else pulling the strings. Those are the spiritual beings who are also at work against us at times. Even though we don't see them, we don't know they're there, we don't know what they're working, but sometimes in the shadows, they're at work. Paul reminds us of this when he writes to the church at Ephesus. He says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly Places. And that's why he tells the church at Ephesus, put on the whole armor of God. You're just not fighting other human beings. There are spiritual forces at work in the world that you don't see. So looking at these verses in a whole, we walk away with the reality, though not an acceptable one, but a true one, that we're going to face unfavorable circumstances in life for a variety of reasons. God's own son, Jesus did, and if he did, we will. But the good news is because Jesus did, he understands when you do. And that's why when you pray and the writers of Hebrews says that you have a faithful high priest who understands what you're going through because he's been through it himself. And so he can relate to it when you're in the midst of a struggle and situation is difficult on you. He understands the stress of what it's like to have people plot against you. And so he can identify, he can relate when you bow in prayer and you say to him, God, I don't know what to do because these people are uh, wrecking my life and I don't know how to overcome it. He says, I understand. I've been there. I know what that's like. He's a faithful high priest. So how should we as Christians respond when these unfavorable circumstances show up in our life? We always look to Jesus. Look at the text with me. Let me pick back up at verse 7. We'll finish out the text here. Then, he came, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold... When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as Jesus told them, and they prepared the Passover. So what Luke does here uh, in the literature, or what he's doing here as a writer, is he's juxtaposing two scenes for us. On the one scene, we have humans, uh, religious leaders, political figures, uh, and then there's this figure in the background, in the shadows, operating Satan, who looks like they're arranging and controlling events, and now he has a disciple who's betrayed him, and it looks like they're the ones running the show. They're controlling what's going to happen to Jesus. 
But Luke takes just as these people are seeming like they're in control. He gives us a a picture of Jesus who's really the one in control so that we might recognize that Jesus is the one who's ultimately running the show. Uh, In the text before us, when we look at the text, we notice Jesus' attitude. He's not flustered. He's not running in a panic. He's calm, directing the affairs of his disciples so that the will of God is accomplished. That's exactly what he's doing. The Passover is that which God has given to his people at that time and that any obedient Jew would follow. And that's what Jesus is doing, obeying the law of God, doing what his father wanted his people to do. And he's instructing those who are under his charge to do the same things so that God is honored. Now, some commentators believe that the unfolding of this event with Jesus' display of knowledge is an exercise of his prophetic office. That is, that he's showing that he's a prophet by having information that he otherwise wouldn't have. Others uh, view this as just normal circumstances and that perhaps earlier sometime, Jesus, when he was not with the disciples, connected with the owner of this house. They made some prior arrangements, and Jesus is just executing that in time. Uh, the reason why they think that is because when you look at the text, there's something cultural going on in that culture, in that day, and perhaps in some other cultures of the world. I don't mean to offend the ladies in the room, but in that day, uh, carrying water was a woman's job. That's what it was in their society. And so for a man to be carrying a jar would stand out. He would look different, odd to people around him. And so this may have been a prearrangement in the fact that, that they had agreed on a sign. And it was like, look, we'll just do something different. I have a guy carrying some water, my servant. That way your disciples will know who he is. Just tell them to follow him. Come back to the house. Let me know when you're ready. We'll get it set up. We'll take care of it. So it just could have been that. In either case, what the disciples realize and learn and what Luke wants to press home to us is that Jesus uh, is in control in such that the disciples find everything just as Jesus has said. So Jesus is the one who's controlling the affairs and the events. This becomes clearer to us in light of what was happening in this text as the meal unfolds and we realize that Jesus really is in control of the events that are, that are transpiring. How do we know that? Because we find out as the meal unfolds, which we didn't know at the beginning because they've been doing the secret planning over here, that Jesus is knowledgeable about the secret plans. So Jesus is sitting in there. Judas has no idea that Jesus knows. So he leans over to, to uh, Judas and uh, and then he's talking, and he's talking to him, and he ends up telling John, I'm going to be betrayed. And they're like, well, who is it going to be? And he said, let me just name him for you. It's this guy. <laughs> then he even tells Judas, I know what you're up to. Not only do I know what you're up to, I'm going to give you time to do it. Go ahead on. Do it quickly. I'm going to give you some space. Do what you want to do. Now, I imagine that if I had been in a position that Jesus was in, you would have had a different story here in the Bible. (laughs) See, my story would have went something like this. So Ben was at dinner. He found out that he was getting betrayed. He was hanging out with his buddies, and they were all at the table eating, and I found out Judas. I'd be like, Judas, boy, you a cold one, ain't you? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. That's all right. Do what you're going to do. Go ahead on. Talk to him, man. You better go get those priests. We'll be waiting for you. Judas left. I watched him go out the door. Watched him get down the street, and when he was out of sight, I said, let's roll. <laughs> Pack it up. We're leaving. <laughs> Judas would have made his way back to the house with the priest, or wherever he thought we were going to be. We wouldn't have been found. I'd have been in Galilee. He said, find me. 
You know, the people would have come back, teaching would have went on, and ministry would have been just fine. (laughs) Not Jesus. Why does Jesus stay? Why does Jesus orchestrate the very events that they want to happen to happen when he knows what's going to happen? He tells us in John's gospel. Notice what the text says. No one takes it, that is, my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What we see in this text is that Jesus truly, wholly trusts God, his Father. And even though humans and spiritual beings are plotting evil against him and they think they're in control and orchestrating all the events to get their will done, Jesus says, I know, but you're actually going to do God's will. You meant it for evil, but God means it for good. Because when you do what you're going to do, God's going to save the whole world through it. So they thought they were running it, but God was the one ultimately directing all the affairs so that his will would be achieved. See, in the face of unfavorable circumstances, Jesus says, I know it's going to be bad for me, but I choose to trust my father because he's the one who's ultimately in control. Now, just in case you think I'm just making this up because it sounds good, listen to what the gospel writer Peter says when he says this. He writes this, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him, God, his Father, who judges justly. He didn't run. He didn't panic. He didn't hide. He trusted, believed served, obeyed, because he knew and had confidence that God is the one really ultimately in control. So for you and I, there may be people who are plotting against you. They may be devising plans right now on the phone as we're sitting in this room. Maybe there are spiritual beings who've already set up to put you in a situation this week. But God is still on the throne and in control. Because you know ultimately that God is in control. Whatever situation you might run into this week or in the weeks ahead, you can trust him. So that means for us that when unfavorable circumstances show up in our lives, we don't have to lose our composure and start sinning and acting like the world. We can rest in the truth that God is sovereign and he's actively sovereign. He's working things out. Now, you might ask, well, how is God working? Where is God going with this stuff? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, as he wrote to Christians in Rome, he said this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The active understanding there is that things are just not working out themselves, like mysteriously just happening like magic. The reason things are working out is because God is the one who has his hands on them, working them out for your good. Now, he doesn't say in the text that everything is good. He says God is working it for your good. 
So when unfavorable circumstances show up, God's got his hand even on those things, and he's working them towards an end that will be good for you. Daryl Box sums it up well when he says this. He says, look, God's control, even in the midst of dire circumstances, is important to recall as we face painful circumstances in our own lives. Though our modern difficult circumstances may not involve martyrdom as it did with Jesus, there are moments where we and others face desperate circumstances. We may struggle with God's activity in our lives, or we may have a breakdown in major relationships. Perhaps we're suffering from health problems that cause us to turn to God more fervently. But the way in which Jesus faced the ultimate end of his ministry is not unlike us coming to grips with the hard curves that often throw trauma into our lives. Granted, Jesus is the example, but his trust and his calmness in the face of what was ahead reveals that he had a deep trust in the direction that God leads. So when we look at this text, we realize, though, even in unfavorable circumstances, we can rest in the fact that God is in control. And so because God is in control and he's working things together for our good, he's active in our lives, then we can continue to obey Jesus. We don't have to turn away and start doing things that displease God to try to get ourselves out of those situations. My wife came to know this truth when she was 19 years old by personal experience. At the time, my wife was still living at home with her parents. She was the last of the children still living at home. And she was attending college, and they had recently uh, moved up to, into the mountainous area of Puerto Rico called Tua Alta. Uh, they were there, and they were looking at purchasing this home, and they were thinking about it. They had moved into the house, and they were in the process. Her dad was uh, here in the States at an engineering conference, uh, and so he wasn't home, so it was just her and her mother at home. And on this particular morning, about 5 a.m. in the morning, they needed to leave early because, well, traffic in Puerto Rico is bad. It's like L.A. It gets real bad. And so, uh, and, and so they need to leave early in the morning to get to their destination. On that particular morning, they were uh, headed out because my mother-in-law had been spending the summer selling avocados. She had saved some money, and she wanted to, to contribute to this effort of a church plant that was happening in Turkey. So she had that money. And then in addition to that, uh, one of our, my wife's older sisters needed some uh, financial assistance, and so they were sending money to her uh, here in the States while she was uh, attending college. And so they were on their way early that morning. Uh, it was dark. Uh, it's 5 a.m. in the morning. It's, it's really, really early. Uh, they're coming around some curved roads to get in there, some drop-offs down in the valleys, and so they're making their way. And this is not that kind of road like where it's two lanes, you know, paved, little line in the middle. You just have plenty of passing space. It, no, it's one of those narrow roads. It, it was one of those kind of roads that you have to pull over to the side so the other person can get by safely. So as they were coming down the road in the morning and they were making their way down this road, this narrow road, uh, the lights on, they, they noticed a car coming from the other way with their lights on. And so they did what they normally do, pull over to let the other car pass. Uh, the car didn't pass. It did something odd and strange. It pulled in front of them, turned on its high beams, and bumped into the front of their car. A young man opened the door on the passenger side, jumped out, ran to their window, tried to pull the door open, and when he couldn't, he pulled out a gun and put it to the window and told them, get out of the car. Almost instinctively, my mother-in-law reacted, probably just without thinking. She 
threw the car in reverse, slammed on the accelerator. The, the car just roared to life. The wheels spun, and the car sped off backwards. Now, because my mother-in-law is not Tom Cruise, <laughs> she couldn't control the car. Instead of staying on that curved road, she went over the side. And the car went down backwards, down into a valley. My mother-in-law began to, to tell my wife, listen, you need to start praying right now. My wife, uh, under so much stress as a 90-year-old, the only prayer that she could recall to, to mind was the Our Father prayer. So she began praying in Spanish repeatedly over and over that, that same prayer. The assailants followed. The man came down over the top of the hill, made his way down to where they were, and he began to, with his foot, kick as forcefully as he could as the window so as to knock it out. When he saw that the window wasn't breaking under the force that he was exerting by his foot, he went and found a large rock, boulder, small thing, a uh, large rock, and he went over and started hammering on the window with all of his force. My, my mother-in-law at that point then looked at her daughter and just out of, a, I think, just motherly instinct started telling her, get out of the car, get out of the car, get out of the car right now and run, get out of the car and run. And my wife was like, no, 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 I'm not going to leave you here by yourself. I don't want you to die by yourself. No, I don't want you to stay. And, and she, she finally, my mother-in-law just looked at her and turned and said, get out of the car. So my wife prayed, jumped out of the car and ran into the darkness to hide. Thankfully, the window gave way. It broke. He reached in the car, grabbed her purse, and then walked up the hill, jumped in the car on the passenger side, and he, whoever he was with, drove off. My wife was there in the darkness, somewhere in the bushes and the weeds, hiding out, bent down low. My mother-in-law got out of the car and started calling out my wife's name. And it was probably, my mother-in-law says that the, the moment that was the most uh, fearful for her because my wife wouldn't answer. And the reason that my wife wouldn't answer was because where she had decided to hide was just where the, the, the assailants had to drive by. And they were driving by in those moments. And she was afraid that they were going to take her if they heard her respond. And my mother-in-law, because my wife wasn't answering, in that moment came to grips with the reality that she might be taken right now. Thankfully, she wasn't. They found each other again, and some neighbors who had heard the commotion decided to come down. Uh, some of the men from the neighborhood gathered around them and tried to calm them and took them back up to the house and called the police, and everyone got involved. Now, years later, looking back on what happened in those events, my wife and my mother-in-law realized that things could have turned out very differently. And in that, they see that God's hand was in control even in the midst of those unfavorable circumstances that they went through. They know that if God hadn't had his hand on them, either one or both of them could have been put away in a long home. But they thank God because he is the one who was ultimately in control. But they're not the only ones who were reminded of that. We were reminded of that just last week. When Pat wrote this in his email to us, he said this at the end of the email. Even though this is a minor setback, we are thankful for God's timing that this happened on Sunday morning while there were no constructors working here on site. 20,000 pounds falling you will make you have a bad day. 
brothers and sisters, it wasn't by chance that they weren't here working and those things fell down. It was by God's grace and by God's design that no one here was hurt. Brothers and sisters, God is in control. I realized this when I was standing at that counter with that unfavorable circumstance unfolding there with that job, and I could have lost my job by making such a huge error in that time. And the man, and when I asked him, well, do you want me to rerun the job? He said, no, don't worry about it. I'll just take them like this. He pulled out his business card and without the slightest agitation paid and walked away. And what could have been a bad situation turned out to be a major upsell for me. <laughs> My relative that I told you about who was working for the government agency uh, months after he had left the agency ran into some old co-workers and they said, did you ever find out what happened in the agency after you left? And he said, no, I don't know what happened. Well, what happened? He said, well, after you left, uh, without you knowing it, there was an investigation because others had reported it. And on your behalf, an investigation was launched about why you ended up resigning. And what they found after months of the investigation was that the manager and the instructor were in the wrong. And so you remember how she had said to him, call me in six months, see how you're doing? Well, six months after he resigned, they were walking her out the door. And the instructor that had been his instructor, they removed her from that position, and she was never able to work as an instructor again. Brothers and sisters, God is the one in control. What my wife, my mother-in-law, what my relative and I discovered, though, has already been known for many centuries. All we simply have to do is go back and look in the Bible, and we'll see that others have already been saying this. You remember Joseph back in Genesis some 4,000 years ago? Uh, he was living there in Egypt, and there was a woman that he was, as he was working for a guy, the wife said that he had raped her, so he was falsely accused, and he was thrown into prison, and after two years, he was in prison, and then some bad things were happening, he wanted to get out. And you remember how God worked the normal circumstance of life so that in one day, he went from prisoner to prime minister. See, he, he, he knew at that moment that God was the one running the show. Perhaps you remember Ruth. She was a, a Moabitess and some unfortunate circumstances that happened to her. She was a young woman and she was married and her husband suddenly just died all of a sudden. And in the ancient world, women had it hard. Oh, they had it hard. Women had it hard in life because in society, without a man, you could be forced into occupations, let's just say, none that a woman wants to be put in. Uh, and, and, and in those circumstances, she decided to leave her own people and cast her lot in with a woman from another nation who was a mother-in-law uh, and to, to go to a God that she didn't know, the God of Israel. And she said, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you live, that's where I'm going to live. Where you die, I'll die. And your God is going to be my God. I'm going to trust in the God that you're trusted in. And that God that she put her trust in, he just started to work the ordinary affairs of life so that she ended up in a particular place at a particular time so she could meet just the right man and not just any old man. He was a good man, and he was able to take care of her, and he brought her into the family and loved her and treated her well and took away her shame such that she became the great-grandmother of King David. And you know where David's line went, don't you? That went straight to Jesus. God has a way of controlling the events. Esther and Mordecai, if you remember, when they were living outside of the land and they were in another place where they were not the power players and the king had a best friend and the king's best friend, he just happened to be a little racist. He didn't like Jews that much and so he wanted to have them all annihilated. He wanted to commit genocide. And so he was setting plans in motion using his political power and influence and his plan was looked like it was going to happen just like he had, he had set it up. All the things were in place and God just worked in the ordinary circumstances of life so that he reversed it so that he was hung on the gallows he had built 
for them. See, Esther and Mordecai in that moment realized that it wasn't just them. It wasn't just human effort, that there is a God in heaven who rules over the affairs of men. And he's the one who decides how events unfold in life. Brothers and sisters, God proved this when Jesus, after he allowed them to do what they wanted to do with him, they killed him. And they, I'm sure there was a party and a celebration. Oh, we got rid of Jesus. Life is going to be so much better now. He's gone. He's done. He's buried. He's in a tomb that on Sunday morning, just a few days later, when they had, were celebrating, then Jesus said, wait a minute now. Don't celebrate too fast. Let me shake off death. Wake up, get up, and walk out the grave. And all he left behind was an empty tomb because they had no body to prove. See, that, that they would have brought the body out if they could have done it, but they couldn't because he had already been raised. And he said, look, you thought you were running the show, but hey, oh, wait a minute, God's running the show. Now, when I was a child, I didn't understand when I sang that song, but I understand it now. And that's why as a child, they taught us to sing. He's got the whole world in his hands. Yes, he's got the little bitty babies in his hands, and he has you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. So when you run into unfavorable circumstances, don't panic. God's got it under control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the reality that gives us hope in the darkness of life when the storm is raging. Lord, when those who seem to have power over us and we seem to be helpless and weak, are able to concoct and maneuver life in such a way to put us in unfavorable circumstances, we're thankful that you're still on the throne. That's what you told King Nebuchadnezzar when he said, look at all I've built, and for seven years you made him have the mind of an animal where he ate grass. And then after he came out of that seven years, he said, nope, there's a God in heaven who's ruling the affairs of man. We thank you for the reminders that you give us in life that you're running the show. I don't know what our people are facing this week, but would you give them a reminder that you still got it under control? If they're in some unfavorable circumstances right now, let them see your hand. Let them sense your presence, that you're the one running the affairs of this world. And because we love you, you're going to work things together for our good so that you might be honored and Christ might be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing our final song? Mm -hmm.